Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. We are going to continue studying church history through the end of the year, and today we are doing Pentecostalism and the Charismatic Movement. So I'm already hearing some sounds that sound a little charismatic-y, so that's good for this, that's good for this lesson. Let, let me open in a word of prayer, and then we will uh, jump into uh, what we're talking about today. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the spirit that you've given us, that we might know that we're loved and we're sealed for the day of uh, salvation. I pray that you'd encourage us as we study church history. I pray that we would learn lessons both positive and negative, that we might avoid some of the landmines that people have already stepped on, and that you might give us wisdom. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we start this movement, I need to have a huge disclaimer, and this is the disclaimer. Today, we are just studying the history of the charismatic movement. We're just doing church history, okay? The history of the charismatic movement is super crazy, Okay? Now, that does not mean that one cannot make a good case for possibly using certain sign gifts today. If you want to know more about prophecy and tongues and miracles and that kind of stuff, you'll have to wait till we get to those sections in 1 Corinthians. We're almost there. So that's where we're going to give you more of an expose on what you should or shouldn't think about gifts. There are very godly men who uh, still believe that the gifts are around today to some extent, guys including D.A. Carson and Wayne Grudem and John Piper and Sam Storms to a, uh, an extent also J.I. Packer. So there are godly men that would hold, uh, hold that the gifts are somehow around today. But the reason that they hold that is based upon biblical arguments. Again, I'm not saying that I agree with them, but it's based on biblical arguments. Today, though, we are just looking at the history and the history is pretty crazy. So though I'm going to dog on this movement throughout this lecture, that does not mean that uh, I'm dogging on you or your position. The elders have already decided at Parkway that if you are a member, you can be a cessationist, someone who would say tongues and prophecy are not around today, or you can be a continuationist. We think this is a, uh, uh, or the elders think that this is a, a, not a major doctrine, but a minor doctrine, but they would also give clarifiers on both those positions, right? We would still say that God does miracles today. He still heals today. And if you're a continuationist, there would also be certain parameters around making sure that you use the gifts in an orderly way. And then all the elders would agree that God does not give new binding revelation today. Okay. So everybody good with that disclaimer? Okay. So we're just doing church history. We'll talk about the actual gifts when we get to, to that in first Corinthians. But today we get into the lecture that I have been most excited about all year. This is the one that I've been wanting to do all year. I woke up this morning and it wasn't time to get up and I thought, it's Pentecostalism Sunday. And I sprung out of bed, like don't wake daddy, like that game, and the dad just pops up and I was ready to give this lesson. So, where do the following ideas come from historically? Speaking in tongues, being slain in the spirit, holy laughter, declaring things in Jesus' name, name it and claim it, the word of faith movement, the prosperity gospel, hearing God speak in your heart, etc. We are gonna look at today a movement that is distinctly American. And some of our other lectures, you might not know who Aquinas is, but I guarantee you, you have either grown up this way or you've interacted with those that are charismatic, and this movement is distinctly American. I don't know if you know this or not, a lot of good things come out of America when it comes to technology, finance, freedom, business, we're good at that. Philosophical and theological movements that come out of America are usually really terrible. Okay, we're not good at that. What is America's greatest contribution to philosophy? Do you know what it is? It is a philosophical system known as pragmatism that doesn't care about what's true, doesn't care about what's ethical, we just care about what works. That comes out of America, that is an anemic philosophical system, in my opinion, not great. Theological movements that come out of America are typically not great. We saw that last week with the Second Great Awakening, 
and all of the Pelagianism and legalism that that helped engender. That's also true of the cults. They both come out of America, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. But Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, for better or for worse, is America's most influential contribution to church history, for better or for worse. That is the thing that in the history books that is uniquely American, that is going to be our greatest influence around the world when it comes to global Christianity. There are some that think that's good. There are some that don't think that's good. The evangelist G. Campbell Morgan called the Pentecostal movement, quote, the last vomit of hell, okay? So you can tell what he thought about it. He was obviously a big fan. The charismatic movement, you also need to understand, is enormous. In 1970, it had about 67 million adherents. That's still pretty big, uh, but not huge. In 2011, there were 584 million people who identified as Pentecostal or charismatic. That's 26.7% of Christianity. The largest chunk of Christianity is Roman Catholic. It's 50%. So this is the next biggest right, at this uh, over 26%. In 2016, the number was five, I'm sorry, 656 million Charismatics and Pentecostals. This is enormous, and it is America's contribution to church history. So let's get into it. What is Pentecostalism and the Charismatic Movement? I'm gonna be going back and forth between those terms. Here are the differences between them. Pentecostalism is a Christian denomination. It's a specific denomination that emphasizes using the sign gifts such as speaking in tongues and modern prophecy today, they believe the experiences in the book of Acts are normative and necessary for full Christian sanctification. So all Christians believe that God gifts us to some extent. Everybody thinks the gift of teaching is around or the gift of hospitality is around. The question is, on those kind of gifts you see used by the apostles, for example, in the book of Acts, were those unique because God was doing something unique in redemptive history right after the resurrection? Or are those normative and necessary for Christians today? That's the question. Now, Pentecostals, you need to understand, are not heretics. What your views of the gifts, even if you hold crazy views of the gifts, are not a matter of heresy. There are some Pentecostals and Charismatics that are literally heretics. One of the biggest groups is called the United Pentecostal Church, and they are modalist. They, they, they don't believe in the Trinity. They don't think that God is three persons. They think he's only one person. They will only baptize in Jesus's name only and not into a Trinitarian formula. So they would be heretical, but a Pentecostal inherently is not, although some are obviously on the fringes. Now, the charismatic movement is a little different. The charismatic movement, and it also has several names, neo-Pentecostalism, continuationism, and continualism. Continuationism and charismaticism denote the same thing, but they connote something different. A continuationist says, I believe these gifts may be around based on what I see in Scripture, whereas the charismatic is going to be a little more free in their use of the gifts in their day-to-day life. But the charismatic movement is the international spread of certain Pentecostal doctrines into other Christian denominations. So Pentecostalism is its own denomination. The charismatic movement has influenced many denominations. You have charismatic Baptists, you have charismatic Methodists, you have charismatic Catholics even, you have charismatic Lutherans, so it is more of a trans-denominational movement. Now, raise your hand in here if you've ever been to a Pentecostal or charismatic church service. Most people, okay, so this is going to be familiar. Where does this stuff come from historically? Well, before we get into its uh, Americanness, it does have a short forerunner in the UK, Edward Irving. 
1792 through 1834, was a minister of the Church of Scotland who had been run off due to his heterodox views. He founded the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, which combined end times fervor, and by the way, you'll notice that end times fervor will be a constant mark of the charismatic movement. You'll turn on your TV to TBN, and there's some guy with a burning tank and an Israel flag behind him talking about some view of revelation no one's ever heard of, but that happens with attempts to make the gifts of the first century normative for today. One of his followers, Mary Campbell, taught that regeneration at salvation was different from the baptism of the Spirit, which was evidenced by speaking in tongues. Now, that's the only blip we have on the radar before this thing really takes off in America. The reason I say that this is uniquely American is because this forerunner is not connected to what's gonna happen in America. This is a blip on the radar, it goes away, and then you get the start of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement in America. Let's talk about where this comes from. First of all, it has its beginning in the Methodist church. Some of the followers of John Wesley popularized what was once called the holiness movement. So here was the idea. For all of church history, there was this idea that at conversion, at regeneration, you were baptized by the Spirit. That's what Jesus means, right? John baptizes with water. John actually says this, I baptize with water. The one who's coming that baptizes in the Spirit. The idea was, was that there was only one blessing. There was only one baptism of the Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is a person. The question is not, will you have more of him? You have him. The question is, will he have more of you? Will you submit your life to him and obey him? That's the idea. Now, what's gonna happen out of this Wesleyan holiness movement is there's gonna be a new idea, and here's the new idea, that there's not one baptism of the Holy Spirit, but that there's two baptisms of the Spirit. You've probably heard of this, a second baptism of the Spirit, a second blessing of the Spirit, a second work of grace. So in this movement, here's the idea. You trust in Christ, that's the first baptism of the Spirit, you're a Christian. But then there would be a time later in your life where you would receive a second baptism of the Spirit, and it would be evidenced by what? Not tongues, not yet. You're jumping ahead. It would be evidenced by living a perfect life. That was the idea. That's why it's called the holiness movement. So you'd repent, you'd get saved, and then there would be a time where you're so filled with the Spirit that you would never sin again, okay? There's actually a famous story of a uh, famous Wesleyan holiness preacher who was teaching on this in Chicago and walked outside and the wind blew off his hat and he said a curse word, right? Because you can't actually be fully sanctified this side of eternity. So what they believed is that you would no longer intentionally sin, you'd still accidentally sin, but somehow you are still perfect. So that's where it's going to start. It's going to start with this idea in the Methodist church that, and Wesley didn't hold this, but his followers, that there was not one baptism in the spirit, your conversion, but that there was two, and that the second one would be marked by living a perfect Christian life. Though the holiness movement began in 1867, In 1894, the holiness movement became its own denomination. 13 Methodist ministers met to try to recover that camp meeting fervor that you saw during the Second Great Awakening. The Church of the Nazarene, if you've ever heard of that, the Church of God, uh, all come from this collaboration. But at this time, the primary issue is holiness, not sign gifts. But you start to see that they're, they're laying the foundation to say, and listen to this, this is really important, there are two kinds of Christians. Those that really have the stuff those that are varsity Christians that really have the spirit and those that are just barely saved, right? They get to heaven, but they smell like smoke. They're in, but they're not really where they should be. That's kind of the idea. Okay, how does this now take off into Pentecostalism? A man sympathetic to the holiness movement named Charles Fox Parham, remember that name. That's, he's gonna be 
the, the granddaddy of Pentecostalism, if you want to say it that way. His name is Charles Fox Parham. A rumored homosexual taught at Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas, and challenged his students to be open to the gifts of the Holy Spirit described in the book of Acts. So he's this teacher at this little unaccredited Bible college in Topeka, Kansas, and he is challenging his students as they're studying the book of Acts, go home and be open to this. Go home and try this. Why in the book of Acts are they seeing miracles? Why are they speaking in tongues? Why are they getting words from God? And we have a tendency not to see those things today. Go home and be open to this. And then we have on record the first person to speak in tongues on record in church history, okay? Like with, we know the day that it happened. And here's, what it, here's who she is. The first person on record, others had been rumored to do it, to speak in tongues in the modern era was a woman named Agnes Osmond, one of Parham's students. When did she do it? January 1st, 1901 in Topeka, Kansas. Now we have a picture of Agnes there. Doesn't that look like the first lady to speak in tongues? Doesn't Agnes look like an excellent name for this lady? Doesn't she also look like she's from Kansas? It just fits perfectly, okay? There she is, there is Agnes Osmond there, kind of out in the woods. Now, you need to understand this. This is, this is very unique. Throughout most of church history, you don't have people claiming to have prophecy from God and you don't have them speaking in tongues. There's a few exceptions. There was an early church heretic named Montanus who his followers thought he was the Holy Spirit. They used to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and Montanus, okay? There was another thing that happened right at the time of the Reformation where a group known as the Zwickau Prophets thought that they were receiving words from God. They reinstituted polygamy and the German government had to kill them because of their wicked behavior. So typically when people claim this kind of thing, it doesn't go well, it's not mainstream. Most of the church thinks that those things were just for that time because God was doing something unique in the book of Acts. So now you have popping on the radar though, this idea of tongues, okay? Now with tongues, you now have not two blessings, but three blessings of the Holy Spirit. The first is conversion. The second is holiness, and the third is speaking in tongues, okay? That is where tongues, historically, again, I I believe you can make a a good biblical case for that. That's not my position, but it's not a dumb position. This, though, is where it's gonna come from historically, okay? So you're saved, you're holy, you speak in tongues. Pentecostalism, Agnes Osmond, Charles Fox Parham, Topeka, Kansas. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Topeka? Possibly, okay? Parham opened another school in Houston, Texas, and under the influence of Parham, a man named William Seymour, okay? His, uh, his, uh, within his lineage, there were several slaves that, that had come over to the United States. He was uh, William Seymour, who was this uh, African-American man. Uh, he was illiterate, but after learning from Parham, he moved to Los Angeles to promote Parham's ideas, and the first big movement of Pentecostalism will come from this guy. It is called the Azusa Street Revival. Seymour was a black preacher with one eye. He used to put a shoebox on his head to hide the glory and then pull the shoebox off before preaching. In 1906, Seymour led what is called the Azusa Street Revival at an abandoned Methodist church at 312 Azusa Street in Los Angeles. Can anything good theologically come out of California? Okay. This movement is where Pentecostalism took off in the United States. Seymour had proclaimed that God would judge sinners right around the time that California experienced the largest earthquake in U.S. history, right? So here's this guy preaching, and he's got a shoebox on his head, and he steps up, and then he takes it off, and he starts preaching, and he's calling people to repentance, and then there's this huge earthquake, and people are like, oh my gosh, he's right. This movement is from God, okay? 
The meetings on Azusa Street went on daily for three years, every day for three years. It was marked by spontaneous prayer, preaching, and an unprecedented cooperation between whites, blacks, and women. Okay? So there's a picture of that church there on Azusa Street, and there's a picture of William Seymour. That is where uh, Pentecostalism, that movement, is really where it's going to take off in the United States. Before that, there's just a few individuals Parm starting to promote his ideas. It's really going to be Seymour that is going to uh, push this with the Azusa Street Revival. Around this time, the denomination, the Assemblies of God, maybe you're familiar with this denomination, the Assemblies of God was started. It began as a split away from Pentecostalism in 1914 in Hot Springs, Arkansas. They taught that there was not three blessings of the Spirit, but two, though many would say there's one work of grace. Now, notice how the holiness element began to fade away. Originally, it was you get converted, the second baptism of the Spirit, holiness. And then you start getting the tongues thing mixed in there. Maybe at the second baptism, maybe at a third baptism, you also speak in tongues. As the movement's gonna go out, it's gonna drop the holiness part, and it's gonna go when you believe in Christ, that's your first baptism of the Spirit, but a second gift, a second blessing will happen, and it will be evidenced by speaking in tongues. Okay? This church right there, Genesis Church, is Assemblies of God. Okay? So this is a very popular denomination. Some of them would qualify and they would say, no, there's only one work of grace that God is doing and it just plays itself out in two ways. But most of them would say that speaking in tongues is something that uh, every Christian should do. Okay? Despite the fact that Paul will be clear that not all Christians have all the gifts or else we don't need each other. God gives some gifts to some people and different gifts to others because he wants us to be a body and work together. Now look at this next lady, okay? One of the earliest promoters of these doctrine was a woman named Amy Simple McPherson. Raise your hand in here if you've ever heard of Amy Simple McPherson. A few of you, yes, okay. She was, as you can see, a beautiful woman. This helped contribute to her popularity. She was the first mainstream female preacher in the Pentecostal movement, okay? Pentecostalism before Amy Simple McPherson generally frowned upon a woman minister, as most of church history had as well. In church history, they allowed women to be deacons. We see that in several places in church history, but they did not allow women to be elders or pastors. She is going to change that, and she's going to change Pentecostalism forever. Now, she is a fascinating figure. If you want to go do a PhD on somebody in church history, do it on her, and it will blow your mind. Let's talk about this lady. Her middle name, Simple, was from her first husband. He had passed away, and so uh, her last name, McPherson, was from her second husband, hence Amy Simple McPherson. She promoted what was called the four-square gospel movement, meaning she's going to make her ministry primarily about these four things. The four elements of her quote-unquote gospel refer to salvation, the second coming, healing, and speaking in tongues. Okay? Those are going to be the same things that most charismatic and Pentecostals will emphasize today. A huge end times fervor, a huge emphasis on healing, a huge emphasis on speaking in tongues, and also the hopes of salvation. Now, she put on a show. She would wear long white robes to preach. She sometimes entered the church on a white horse, okay? So I don't know if you see what, what Jeff and I do when we get, we get here, we just kind of walk up these stairs. We don't pop out of the floor like Garth Brooks or something like that. We don't come in on a white, but she would come in on a white horse. Sometimes she had guide wires so she could fly in. Imagine that you're watching and then someone just flying over your head up to the stage. So she really put on a show. She started the Salvation Navy. You've heard of the Salvation Army? The guys that ring the bells at Christmas time? Well, that's not enough. You can't just fight a land battle. She has the Salvation Navy with a gospel evangelistic ship. In addition to being a divorcee, she was an adulteress. There was a rumor that she had been kidnapped, but she had actually been having an affair with actor Milton Berle. Okay? Uncle Milty, 
Mr. Television. This guy has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And so it's just, it's crazy. They thought she was kidnapped. I think that they actually found her wandering in the desert on drugs in Mexico because she was having an affair with Milton Berle. She died of an overdose and Benny Hinn visits her grave regularly. That is Amy Simple McPherson. Okay? She, her influence, though, in the Pentecostal and charismatic movement is enormous. Other guys that had strong influences in this movement. See, these are guys you've heard of. When I mention, you know, John Scotus Eregina, you're like, who is that? This medieval theologian. But if you mention these guys, you're like, I've seen these guys on TV. I might have even been to one of their services, right? <clears throat> Oral Roberts, a man from Oklahoma, founded ORU, which has a pretty good basketball program a few years ago, founded Oral Roberts University and promoted charismatic doctrine. What did he do? Through large crusades. So Billy Graham would do crusades, which is a terrible name. I don't know if you've ever studied the crusades. It's, it's kind of a marketing flaw for Christians to use that term. But what Billy Graham would do is he'd rent out a football stadium and he would present the gospel and people would get saved in droves. What Oral Roberts is gonna do is he's gonna do something similar but instead of the emphasis being on evangelism, it's gonna be on gifts, okay? It's gonna be on seeing these miraculous works. It's gonna be on things like speaking in tongues. There's a picture there of Oral Roberts. Kenneth Hagin, who is the most influential theologian to come out of McKinney, Texas? You thought it was Jeff. It's not. Kenneth Hagin, born right here in McKinney, Texas, would go on to promote the word of faith movement, which taught that you can change reality just through your speech. Something previously only thought to be able to be done by God right? It's God who calls things as not as though they are. It's God who speaks things into being. It's God says, let there be light and there's light. But the word of faith movement is going to say that you can change reality by speaking things into being, okay? Let me just be clear. That is not biblical. Check it out. I'm a dragon. Nothing happened, okay? It's easy to disprove. You don't control reality like that. God controls reality. That's something only he can do. He can speak things into being, not you, Okay, so if you have this weird superstition, and that's what it is, it's superstition, where somebody says something negative and you feel like you have to rebuke it in Jesus' name, that's witchcraft. That's superstition. God is not asking you to say a mantra to protect yourself from getting in a car wreck, okay? But that's gonna come from Kenneth Hagin. Now, Kenneth Hagin is gonna have a disciple that is more famous even than him. A young man that you might have heard of named Kenneth Copeland. That is a flattering picture that I found. There's a lot of not flattering pictures. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Kenneth Copeland. Right out here of the DFW area, had uh, one of the largest churches in Fort Worth for a while. Kenneth Copeland, his influence in this movement is going to be also enormous. You might have not known this, Copeland was a nightclub singer who actually had a gold record. He's actually a pretty good singer. He once got the opportunity to lay hands on and pray for none other than Johnny Cash, the man in black. How about that? So you've got a nightclub singer who's got a gold record, right? Puts on his pants one leg at a time, but after the pants are on, he makes gold records. And he is gonna pray for Johnny Cash and he's gonna start getting into the ministry. His wife, Gloria Copeland, was a cheerleader in high school whose mascot was, ironically, the Red Devils, okay? His net worth is as high as $760 million, though he claims to be a billionaire. He owns a $6 million mansion in Fort Worth with a boathouse, tennis court, swimming pool, zen garden, and movie theater, a $20 million Cessna Citation jet, a second jet, a Gulfstream 5, estimated at about 36 million, his own private airstrip, his own airplane hangar, an $18,000 Rolex, an Escalade, a half a million dollar Mercedes, and a Rolls-Royce Phantom. During COVID, he spit at the disease and, quote, blew the wind of God on it, and yet, for some reason, COVID didn't go away, okay? That is Kenneth Copeland. 
Again, these guys are figures you've heard of because they are the guys in this movement, okay? They are the guys that are gonna push this. Other crazies include Creflo Dollar, who said that humans are gods. Benny Hinn, who said that there are nine members of the Trinity and that he would like to kill his critics, quote, with a Holy Ghost machine gun. His wife, Suzanne Hinn, who famously said that you need a Holy Spirit enema. Pat Robertson, who famously told a man to divorce his wife because she had Alzheimer's. Jimmy Swaggart, who was often involved in scandals with prostitutes. He's kind of the councilman Dexhart, if you're familiar with uh, Parks and Rec of the, uh, of the evangelical world. T.D. Jakes, who denies the Trinity. Joyce Meyer, who said that Jesus stopped being the son of God on the cross. Robert Tilton, Jesse Duplantis, John Hagee, Paul and Jan Crouch, Joel Osteen, Jim and Tammy Baker, Paula White, or anyone who runs a church called something like Flaming Dove, Fire, Full Gospel, Spirit, Tabernacle, Holiness Church. If you see a church that has a name like that, you just get away from it, okay? They're they're, they're overcompensating. They're they're trying to do too much in the name there. There's too much fire, and there's like a dove on fire, and there's tabernacle, and there's the word holiness. Just check check this out, Parkway. See? See how simple these that is? Got a great picture there of old Benny Hinn striking a guy with his jacket and him being slain in the spirit falling. It's actually a really great photo. If I was him, I would have that hanging on my wall behind my desk. That way as I'm counseling, I'm like, do you, you better do what I say. You better do it. I'll hit you with a white jacket. Here's something that you need to understand theologically. A mark of the Holy Spirit's presence is order, not chaos. The spirit comes to bring peace. He brings clarity. He brings order. He brings doctrine. It's clear. It's orderly. Who is it that comes to steal, kill, and destroy? Who is it that likes chaos? Who is it? That's the enemy. The Spirit brings order and peace, not craziness. Even back in the creation account, what is the Spirit doing? He's hovering over the waters and he's bringing order to chaos. Keep that in mind. Sometimes people will ask me about Parkway and they'll say, Is it a Spirit filled church? And I'm like, Yes, we have the Spirit. That's not what you're asking. You're asking, do we use the gifts the way you think that they should be used? And I'm not sure that you're right. So let's have a conversation about Bible and not experience. You with me? You having fun? These guys weird? You bet. All right. Three waves of the charismatic movement. This thing comes in three waves. The first wave was in 1906 with the Azusa Street Revival. Now, the reason it's the first wave is that the movement stayed primarily in Pentecostalism. It was denominational and it focused on tongues. So originally with this movement, it's the Pentecostal denomination. They, they believe like other Pentecostals. They have kind of solid doctrinal bounds, but it hasn't really influenced other denominations, right? All the other denominations pretty much remain cessationistic except for the Pentecostals, which obviously take their name. Denominations, by the way, take their name over what makes them unique. You don't have Christians, a Christian denomination called the Trinitarians. All true Christians are Trinitarians. The denominational names come from what makes you distinct from other Christians. Baptist, because you baptize believers instead of babies. Methodist, because John and Charles Wesley were very methodical when they were meeting together. It's got its roots in Anglicanism. Uh, Pentecostalism, because they uh, emphasize the gifts uh, seen in the book of Acts, etc. Now, the second wave is where this is going to start to become more interdenominational. The second wave was in the 1960s. This is also the time where the feminist movement is going on. The sign gifts started permeating mainline denominations, including the Roman Catholic Church, specifically at Duquesne University, and then eventually it would also come out of Notre Dame. The movement became less concerned about a second baptism, and it became more interdenominational. So the theological background of all the tongue stuff is a second blessing and a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. The second wave of the charismatic movement 
is gonna start downplaying that because they're starting to realize that's not a biblical idea. But they still want to keep these sign gifts and such alive. Now the third wave, this is probably the way that you've most been influenced by the charismatic movement, whether you know it or not. The third wave was in the 1980s. The emphasis became on seeing signs and wonders as in the New Testament. This third wave saw charismaticism spread quickly both nationally and abroad. This include movements like <clears throat> the Vineyard Movement, Catch the Fire in their conferences, and the spread of Calvary Chapel churches. The Vineyard Movement said that there was only one baptism of the Spirit, yes and amen. There's one faith, one hope, one baptism. We've all been made to drink of one Spirit, as the Bible would say but that there could be continual fillings. That's the term they would use after that. The third wave also downplayed the tongues issue, which was central to the first wave. Most churches today are somehow influenced, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> by the charismatic movement, but it's gonna be through this third wave. It's not so much even just with tongues. There's a lot of churches that are open to the gifts that don't do tongues in their services. They're more open to trying to see God move in miraculous ways today. That's gonna come from this third wave of uh, from the charismatic movement, I'm sorry. The charismatic movement is now most pronounced in South America, Asia, and Africa. It's huge in the US, it starts here, but in these other countries, it spreads like wildfire. Now, why? <clears throat> how do you have this movement over just the span? Think about how long it took Lutheranism to spread. Think about how long it took Catholicism to spread. How come this movement starts and it spreads all over the world within just a few decades? How come this thing spreads so quickly? Let me tell you why. First, it dropped the Pentecostal baggage socially. You see, the Pentecostals originally were this group of people. The women weren't allowed to cut their hair. They weren't allowed to wear makeup. They just kind of clapped their hands down by the river. They were seen as this kind of sectarian group. What the charismatic movement's gonna do is they're gonna drop that baggage. In early Pentecostalism, women couldn't cut their hair, couldn't be rich, you had a lot of legalism and attempts at piety. <clears throat> the charismatic movement dropped all of that. You could now be rich, pretty, in shape, and culturally affluent. In fact, Oral Roberts eventually went back to being a Methodist because it was more socially acceptable than being classified into Pentecostalism. It weaponized modern forms of media, TV, radio, podcast, books, etc. If you turn on the TV to watch a TV preacher, nine times out of 10, it's gonna be a charismatic. If you listen to the radio, charismatic. If you go to a conference, they're excellent at conferences, typically charismatic. They are the best at using media to reach people, probably since anybody, anybody in church history uh, back until the time of Luther. Martin Luther was excellent at that. He printed pamphlets. He made fun of people. He was sarcastic. He used the Twitter of his day, which was the, you know, the printing press. The charismatic movement is going to use all these forms of media very, very successfully. It emphasized American values, especially wealth and success. It takes things that Americans already liked and it plays up on those things. Who doesn't want more money for following Jesus, right? It dropped the emphasis on holiness. Now look at this little chart I've created here for you. With the holiness movement, you had two blessings of the spirit. The first was conversion. The second was holiness. You didn't quite have tongues yet. With Pentecostalism, you had conversion, and then you had a second blessing of holiness, and then a third blessing of tongues. Now, some of them would say that the second blessing would be holiness and tongues. Others would say there's a third blessing of the Spirit with tongues. What you got with the Assemblies of God and the Charismatic Movement generally is you got a blessing, a conversion, you got the Spirit, you were saved, but then there'd be a second blessing of speaking in tongues, and you'll notice that the holiness element has fallen off, okay? Doesn't mean some of these people don't want to be holy, they have just not linked this second baptism of the Spirit with what the original founders said it was, living a perfect life, right? Another reason it spread, it offered what I'm gonna call microwave spirituality, okay? <clears throat> How traditionally did Christians think that you grew spiritually? Through a lifetime of suffering, 
You wanna grow spiritually? You wanna know what it looks like to be spirit-filled? Read your Bible every day for 50 years. Pray every day for 50 years. Fast, deny yourself, resist temptation, confess your sins one to another. You do that for years and years and years and years, that's what it looks like to walk with the Spirit. It is a long, painful process of sanctification. But no longer with the charismatic movement, now you could go to a service, have an experience, and all of a sudden you were ready. Like the Second Great Awakening, you'd immediately go into ministry. How did you used to have to train to be a pastor? Not only did you have to deal with all the spiritual stuff I just mentioned of being a Christian, you also had to spend years and years and years in graduate school learning Greek and Hebrew and theology and philosophy and then practicing and all these kind of things. But today, you have an experience in a service. You feel as though you speak in tongues. You can open a storefront and now you have flaming dove, God on fire, full gospel church, right? Now you have that. So you see that it offers a microwave spirituality. I have, a, uh, I have a buddy that is a, a charismatic pastor and he says something that's great. He says, I don't care how high you jump in worship as long as when your feet hit the ground, you walk like Jesus, right? So that's kind of that, kind of that thing. Because it lacks a strong doctrinal statement, it was easily accepted by different denominations. How can it spread transdenominationally? It's because they're not making you agree with a doctrinal statement in every other area. A church can say, there's only one blessing of the spirit at conversion, but I also believe these gifts because they, they don't have to subscribe to like an official Pentecostal, their version of the Westminster Confession or something like that. So that allows it to spread quickly. In poor countries, it spread because it promised people in need relief from their suffering. Messages about health and wealth are very attractive to those in need. John Piper has an excellent sermon where he condemns this, where people are going to these poor countries and they're selling them idolatry follow God and you'll have rings on your fingers and coats on your back and all this kind of stuff. And it's a perversion of the gospel. But for people in need, when you're starving, when you don't have a home and someone says, if you follow Jesus, you will be healthy and wealthy and things will be good, speak it into being. You think, I have hope. This is the first time I feel like I've ever had hope. That's one of the reasons it's spread so quickly in South America, Africa, and Asia is because these are poorer, poorer continents with poorer countries. It produced very popular and sometimes well-done music. So if you go listen to Christian music from the 90s, oh, shoot me, okay? It's real bad. But these guys make music that's actually pretty good. If you think of Hillsong and Bethel, regardless of their doctrine, their songs are at least more well-done than Christians have traditionally done that. By the way, a few times people have asked, can you take a song from a church if the church is doctrinally off, and can you still sing it as a Christian? If that's your question, let me just encourage you again to read 1 Corinthians where you can take idol meat and still eat it as a Christian. We don't care about the origin of things. We care about whether or not they can be used for Christ. Now, you still with me? I'm not trying to beat you. Again, when we get into 1 Corinthians, there's gonna be long explanations on the gift. There's a big difference between saying, I today believe that these gifts can be around and they could be practiced in an orderly way because I look at the scripture. That's a view that many godly people hold. It's a smart position. It's very hard to refute, okay? That is different than what we're talking about with the movement. So I don't want you you in your mind to think, I have a friend who's a continuationist. He's like Kenneth Copeland. No, again, today we're just doing the history of this stuff. We're not getting into all the theology. Now, what are some common concerns about the charismatic movement? We're gonna do some concerns and we're gonna do some good things. First of all, some teachers and adherents are actually heretical. Some do not hold the traditional views of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christ, okay? So charismatics, that's certainly not an issue of heresy or anything like that. That is like a tertiary doctrine. But there are some Pentecostal and charismatic leaders and some church adherents adherents that, you know, 
are not orthodox, that would literally hold a heretical view of the Trinity. I've already mentioned a few of those guys, you know, uh, the Benny Hens and the T.D. Jakes of the world. They often can promote greed and a love of money. Jesus says that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's just a passage we ignore. We say, sure, but, you know, I can be rich anyway. Jesus is saying, you need to be a little bit nervous. It's hard for you to enter the kingdom of God. And this movement says, God wants you to have more money, so it's harder to enter the kingdom of God, okay? There is, there's an element of greed here. I don't know what lavish living is, but all those numbers I just read by Kenneth Copeland, that seems to fall under lavish living. With that amount of money, he could, I don't know, feed Africa, right? If, uh, if Gloria Copeland really has this perpetual gift of healing, which she claims to have, then she is the most wicked person in the world. Where was she during COVID? Why wasn't she just walking up and down the ICUs healing people? If she, if she has this perpetual gift in her mind, I have enough faith, it's gonna happen every time, where was she? They are anti-intellectual. The focus is gonna be on feelings and not doctrine. That is the primary battle of the church, evangelical church period today. There is going to always be this clash of head and heart. There shouldn't be. We should have high head, high feelings that follow that, follow that doctrine, but uh, they're gonna focus on the feelings and not on doctrine. They'll say things like that. You've really put the Bible on the throne. It's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. They'll say things like that, which makes no sense because you don't know anything about God other than through the Bible. You can't separate God from his words. That's how you know who he is, right? So don't do that. Uh, don't, don't separate those things. They're really bad at interpreting just about every part of scripture. Next, number five. They believe that what you see in the book of Acts is normative. Now, let me explain this from the area of church history. Throughout most of church history, they don't hold this view. Now, that doesn't mean they're right. Throughout most of church history, they didn't hold Luther's view of justification, and Luther was totally right on justification. So church history, again, helps, but it's not determinative. Only the scripture determines what we should ultimately believe. But throughout most of church history, here is how they understood what's happening in Acts and the gifts. Miracles are given by God to authenticate his message during certain points in redemptive history. They're given with Moses to prove that the law is from God. Miracles are done by Elijah and Elisha to prove their prophetic office. Miracles are done by Jesus to prove his ministry. Miracles are done by the disciples to show that the gospel is true. What you see in Acts, though, according to most of church history, is not normative. Acts is a transitional book. The gospel is going out. Why do you need prophecy? Because God has to lead his people the same way he led them in the Old Testament, through prophets. The apostles can't be everywhere. They're not omnipresent. The people can't read the New Testament. It's not done being written yet. So God is giving prophets to instruct them. Why do you need tongues in the book of Acts? Because the gospel is going to all nations. When in the Bible does God confuse people's tongues? At the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, people are in their pride are exalting themselves up to the heavens. And so God, to judge human pride, confuses their language. He says, I'm not gonna let you work together in your evil. What you see at Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. God in his grace, instead of judgment, God in his grace is allowing the gospel to go forth, not just in Hebrew and Aramaic, what the Jews would have spoken, but to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. That's the point. The gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So there's really three Pentecosts in the book of Acts. There with the Jews, Jerusalem, then around the time of the Samaritans, then with the Gentiles. You see it follow that same pattern. But that would not be the way that the charismatic movement interprets those things, okay? We'll talk more about that when we get into 1 Corinthians. They would say that these things are more normative. They should be more expected today, okay? Number six, they redefine the spiritual gifts. Again, they might define them correctly. It depends on where you land on the spectrum. But they wouldn't define them the way that church history had traditionally defined them as actual languages and an actual prophetic word from God like the Old Testament. 
They take advantage of the poor. We've talked a little bit about this. They can be very legalistic and are predominantly Arminian, okay? Again, there are charismatic Calvinists that are really, really awesome. Some of my heroes. But the movement as a whole can be very legalistic and they're predominantly Arminian. Think about the weight and the pressure it puts on you for somebody to tell you when you have cancer, the reason you have cancer is because you just don't have enough faith, right? So notice what saves you. It's not Christ. Notice who heals you. It's not Christ. It's you. You conjuring up the strength of your faith is putting your faith in faith, not putting your faith in Christ, okay? And so there's a lot of shame and legalism that goes with that. What do you do if you're told by your denomination that you don't really have the spirit unless you speak in tongues and you keep praying and you keep praying and you keep praying and you don't speak in tongues? You're thinking, God hates me. What is wrong with me? Well, the answer is nothing. Paul's clear that not all are apostles, not all speak in tongues, etc. Number nine, some are very immoral, especially related to areas of sex and embezzlement. They often trust what they think God is telling them in their heart more than what he has said in scripture. And there is extreme pride. Listen to this next point, okay? This is really important. They create two levels of Christians, varsity Christians, who are better, who really have the spirit, and JV. Traditionally, differences between Christians are horizontal. Do you hear that? We all have equal access to God in Christ and our differences are horizontal. We have different gifts so that we can help each other. Some are strong, When it comes to areas of conscience, some are weak, but those are horizontal distinctions. None of those make you closer to Christ or not. However, they're gonna create a vertical distinction between Christians. And historic charismatic believes that they are literally on a higher spiritual plane than you are, okay? They're gonna create this division, these two tiers of Christianity. And again, the church has never recovered from these things. So, are there some good things about the charismatic movement? Of course, Okay, just about, and you can always learn something from somebody if they're wrong in some areas because they might be right in other areas. As the late R.C. Sproul would say, I can learn something from everyone, even the devil, if nothing else, but how to be crafty, right? So you need to understand that there are some good things we can learn from this movement, so I wanna spend some time unpacking what these good things are. First of all, and I think this is a really good thing, many charismatics really do love God and have a deep personal relationship with him, okay? Something good that I think comes out of charismaticism is this reminder that our feelings are supposed to love God. If you feel far from God and your feelings are not close to God, I hear you, that's where I'm at, okay? That's where I'm at. And God still loves me. Everything is okay, that's okay. But that's not the ideal. The ideal is that you have the right doctrine and you have the feelings. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, David will pray. That's the, in heaven, your feelings will always match your doctrine. It'll only be joy. It'll only be love. It'll only be the good stuff. And so I think charismatics do a good job of re-emphasizing that. It's kind of like, so when you have the enlightenment that we talked about and everything is arid and sterile and scientific, the response to that becomes romanticism. It becomes emotion. It becomes feeling. It becomes existentialism. It becomes these kind of things. And so charismaticism, in a sense, is kind of a reaction to some of just the the sterile, arid, doctrinaire Uh, teaching of a lot of churches in the early 1900s, okay? Number two, this is also a good thing. They caused Bible scholars to go back and see what the New Testament really said about spiritual gifts, okay? So again, the movement is crazy, but what it's caused people to do is to go back and say, what do we do with this tongues thing? What do we do with this prophecy thing? We can't just ignore it. We either have to explain that it's no longer around today and it was just for the first century and give reasons, Or we have to say it is around for today and then what should it look like? 
We know it shouldn't look like what we see on TV where people are falling all over the place. You know, when Paul mentions the gifts of like barking like a dog and, you know, uh, being slain in the spirit. He doesn't mention those things. But if you say they're right, we gotta figure out some way to think about these things today. And I actually think that's a good thing. It caused us to go back and say, what does the Bible teach on this? Well, how should we understand these things today? Number three, they trust God to move and are open to the spirits leading in their life. I think that's a good thing, okay? Do I think that God still guides our steps? Absolutely. Do I think that still God still prompts by changing our affections and situations in certain directions? Absolutely. They expect when they pray for God to heal somebody that they'll be healed. And I think that's a good thing. We sometimes don't do that. We basically say this, the prayer like this, God, please heal grandmother, but also I'm a Calvinist and my prayer doesn't really count, so you're already ordained what you're gonna do, amen. That's not how God wants us to pray. Just because you don't know how prayer fits in with God's meticulous sovereignty doesn't mean you're off the hook when it comes to praying. God is a father and he's giving you a direction like a child and your job is to obey. You don't just obey when you understand what's happening, okay? We have good resources on what does prayer do if God's already ordained everything. We can talk about that later, but don't let that hinder the fact that the Bible is clear that you should be praying expectantly. You should be going to God day by day expecting him to move. And so uh, I think this is something good that the, uh, the charismatics give us. Number four, many people have been saved because of their evangelistic influence, okay? They have enough, enough gospel there, enough true gospel there for people to get saved. The largest Protestant denomination and the second largest denomination after Roman Catholicism in the world are those associated with the charismatic movement. Now, that's a good thing. Like, yes, there's gonna be some doctrinal things I disagree with them on. But at the end of the day, if I, in heaven, I get to see a lot of Hispanic believers because they found out about the gospel through a charismatic church, or a lot of Asian believers, or a lot of African believers because they found the gospel through the charismatic church, amen, amen. Now, let me be clear. I don't think that God has blessed this movement because they're right doctrinally. I think that God has blessed this movement because God is gracious. God takes our failings and he still uses us anyway, okay? So I don't think you can just say, but Zach, look how fast the movement's growing. That must mean everything they say is good. You know another movement that's growing super fast? Islam, okay? So you don't wanna make that argument. Rather, what you need to say is that God is using them despite their failings and their faults. Despite the fact that they're getting this wrong and this wrong, at the end of the day, they're still telling people to come to Jesus and it's good that people are getting saved. Number five, the movement has done a better job at racial reconciliation than other denominations, okay? From the beginning, back in Azusa Street, the Pentecostal and charismatic churches have been very welcoming of people from other races, And that's encouraging. Let me tell you why it's encouraging. Because they're not manufacturing it. Many churches today, when they talk about racial reconciliation, just becomes affirmative action for the church. It's tokenism. It's not actually what God is after. The charismatics, though, don't do that. They don't push. uh, I mean, they, they did in 2020. Before that, they didn't push that. They just loved on a bunch of people and didn't really care about skin color, and things were great. So they had like a natural racial reconciliation, Which, by the way, all you have to do to have racial reconciliation is talk about Jesus. Jesus says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. That's the draw, not forcing a fake, you know, thing in your church or whatever like many many denominations do today. And lastly, they have used modern technology and media channels more effectively than other Christian groups. Again, conferences, music, books, I mean, they, they are really good at using those things to help reach people. Now, again, to the degree that they're right, it's, the charismatic movement today is nothing like it was 15 years ago. 
And it was nothing like it was 80 years ago. And it's certainly nothing like it was 120 years ago. It has changed a lot. Uh, some, some groups have gone more extreme and more weird, right? I remember like, uh, you know, people spitting at COVID and getting like a wizard staff on stage and telling racism that it shall not pass like Gandalf. I've seen weird stuff, I've seen weird stuff. But a lot of churches have mellowed out. They've started to say, okay, how can we be open to the Spirit's leading without getting weird? Okay, how can we do that without getting weird? Though God is mysterious, he's not weird. Again, the Spirit's presence brings peace and order and clarity. It does not bring confusion. Uh, it being his presence, he, the Spirit. <clears throat> his presence does not bring confusion. It does not bring chaos. It does not bring all those kind of things. Okay, it brings what you would expect from God, who's consistent, who's logical, who's clear, like he is in his word. So let me pray for us. And our very own Jared Lawson is gonna come up and we're gonna answer some questions related to this era of church history. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit. And we just confess that we need your help. We thank you that we've learned more about kind of a subsection uh, of our family tree, if you wanna say it that way. We pray that we would be more filled with the Spirit. We pray that we would, uh, or maybe a better way to say that is that we would walk uh, in the power of the Spirit who we already have. Would you help us love you more? Would you help us take the good things from this movement and use them and just disregard what is unhelpful? It's for your glory and your name that we pray, amen.